This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to David Corbin from Tech in Asia on the three major events that rock SoftBank, one of the tech giants from Japan in Asia. We discuss the exit of Nikesh Arora, the former president and designated successor to Masayoshi Son, the recent divestments, and the acquisition of ARM, and what lies ahead for SoftBank. Hi, David. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to see you again. Yes, we haven't been talking for a while, and, and I think that you have been very busy with conferences across the world with Tech in Asia, right? Yeah, we are staying busy. We just finished up our Bangalore conference past July, and right now we're steaming ahead to our Tokyo conference, September 6th, 7th. Oh, wow. The next conference is so quick, and I think it was almost a year. So I am talking to David Corbin, Director of Content Strategy, Tech in Asia. And of course, Tech in Asia is the premier site for reporting all news about technology and business in Asia itself. So Dave, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Ah, gosh, been doing these conferences and getting a lot more travel. I've really enjoyed my time in India. I got to see a lot more of Singapore. And every now and then I get to go over to uh, San Francisco. So hopefully I'll see you next time. Yeah, and when you are there in the next couple of weeks, let me know and we can actually catch up and maybe I can get you a visit to where I'm currently staying as well. Yeah, please. I got you in and this is really an urgent request and I thank you so much for it because we have this conversation last year this time and it's on a company that you and I, I, I don't know, maybe not for you, but for me, I'm very bullish about this company is SoftBank. And we're talking about SoftBank in 2016. So just a very quick one. We just want to reintroduce SoftBank. And you definitely have to listen to that episode with Dave, where we actually break down what is SoftBank's current business structure, revenues, and everything else. So a brief introduction. SoftBank is a Japanese multinational telecommunications and internet corporations with operations in broadband, fixed line, telecom, e-commerce, internet and technology services, finance, media and marketing, and now semiconductor design and also other businesses. And it's Market capitalization is 9.15 trillion Japanese yen, equivalent to US 86 billion. Most known for owning Sprint in the US and is an investor to Alibaba and many prominent startup unicorns in Asia and US. For example, Didi, Grab and Ola and uh, many others. So there are a couple of major news that have happened just across the last two months. And actually, I wanted Dave to come in and talk about SoftBank a little bit more in detail. So we have broken today's segment into three parts. And we're going to talk about each news in context to each other because there's a lot of things that you can actually read from the tea leaves of what SoftBank has been doing. So I'm going to start with the first piece of news is SoftBank's president Nikesh Arora has stepped down and Masayoshi Shan is now back on the helm of SoftBank. Dave, I wanted to first start off. I think Nikesh Arora made a couple of statements why he has stepped down in a recent Fortune interview. What are your thoughts on him stepping down? Yeah, I think it was really surprising. I remember seeing the news as a version uh, Nikkei news flash on the train ride home. And it, it just took the entire community by surprise. It really wasn't uh, expected. And it, it definitely shows, uh, I think, a big change for, for SoftBank. Um, as to why he stepped down, there's been a lot of digital ink spilled on that. Uh, I do think that 
he handled the departure really, really well, being available for interviews with folks like Fortune or WSJ, also taking questions directly from people on Twitter for like, I think it was three hours after the news broke. So he did a great job of kind of explaining his side, you know, explaining how he got the clear go-ahead from the board that there was no wrongdoing, how he just felt like he didn't want to wait anymore. I feel like his side of the story has been pretty well explained. I think his side of the story is about that he spoke to Masayoshi-san and Masayoshi-san wants to stay in Helm for maybe 5 to 10 years and he couldn't wait. That's the major reason that he's leaving. And a part of it is also he's been attacked by most shareholders about the succession plan, despite that he has actually the second highest ownership in SoftBank now. I don't know whether it has changed, but I guess we can tease out some of the reasons that what may have really happened. So I'm going to discuss it in three different theories that have been gone on in the market. So the first one is regarding the poor performance of investments in India because Nikesh Aurora spearheaded the investments for SoftBank into the India market with all the India unicorns. I mean, the most notable one is housing.com, which was a total disaster with the founder leaving and also other founders depart in the same year as well. So what do you think about that reason? Yeah, one thing I just want to clarify, he invested all of his shares prior to his departure. As far as I'm aware, it doesn't own any shares in SoftBank anymore. And then in terms of the investment track record, yeah, that gets brought up a lot. And it wasn't just India, also the... Uh, drama fever and coupon deals in Korea are kind of seen as failures. On the India side, though, I think that bringing up housing is not entirely fair, especially when you consider that they also invested in Snapdeal, they also invested in Ola. And when you look at like the future of India, so like, they're supposed to put in billions and billions of dollars over the next 10 years. And so saying that, oh, they got one or two investments not so successful in the first couple of years, I don't think that it delegitimizes the case for India investment over the next 10 years. So people who say, oh, he made like this one wrong step and now he's out. I don't think that is the reason why. I think anyone who is an experienced investor, who kind of understands the, the risks inherent in investment, which I think Masayoshi-san does very well. I don't think they would blame these misses so heavily that they would push him out. So to me, this is part of the, the reasons for his departure that aren't as, aren't as relevant. Maybe it's like a tacked on reason, but probably the, the deeper one is something you alluded to before. There did seem to be some issues with, with the board. And I think that there is also the shareholders attack on Aurora due to conflict of interest with his advisory role with Silver Lake Partners. I mean, that he has gotten clearance from an internal investigation, but now the US Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC, is now opening a probe on Nikesh Aurora because of that. Yeah, precisely. I think that that points to a little bit more of a, a deeper issue. And definitely the SEC is going to be having different standards than an internal investigation. So ultimately, this is a case where none of us have, have all the facts. But that, to me, seems to be where there's more of a cause for other shareholders to want him to kind of move on. I was surprised that it was actually institutional shareholders that did the attack because sometime in January, they filed into the Nikkei Stock Exchange about this conflict of interest argument and actually demanded that he should step down, highlighting with the first reason that I highlighted about the poor performance of investments as well. Yeah, so to me, this is something where, again, it's it's hard to know from the outside looking in, but I think that he was always in a, a tough position to be the number two guy in a company. And I think as in a company like SoftBank, because as we discussed last year, one of the reasons about his arrival with, with, that was so surprising is that Sonsan had been searching for a successor and had created a whole SoftBank academy. 
that was conducted in Japanese to try and find a successor either within or without, either within or outside the SoftBank group. So this has been going on for several years already, and it was attracting some amazing talent. <laughs> and then he says, actually, no, I'm just going to take this other guy, just in, from probably the perspective of the people who had been doing this academy, this other guy from out of the blue. So the circumstances around his entrance into the company, I think were probably also controversial for some of the shareholders. And so this issue isn't entirely surprising. That, that's my take on it. I, and I guess that's the third reason, which is Masayoshi-san wants to retain his role as the CEO and chairman for another five to 10 years, meaning that I'm not done yet. There are still a few more things I really want to pull off. That also has some implications about this common conception or misconception, depending on how you see it, because prior to our conversation, you actually gave some thoughts on that. It's about the failure of succession for SoftBank. actually highlights what is called the Asia Strongman Syndrome. There's in many business books where a particular founder CEO wants to retain its power for too long and just couldn't hand over to any successor, even until they are deaf. Do you see that happening in, in that sense? I mean, given that Masayoshi-san couldn't even find someone from within the SoftBank Academy, brought in an external person who's supposed to be highly qualified, you know, how does that met in your opinion? It's, it's very, very subjective. So you can say that someone is super obsessed with controlling power and being the one who makes the decisions. Or you can say someone's super obsessed with finding the right person who can execute their vision, take care of their company. I think that there's also like a really, really high level of uh, comfort and trust that is required to make that sort of succession work well. And so it might not necessarily be a case of, oh, actually, he wants to hang on to power. He doesn't want to let it go. It might also be that all things considered, shareholders considered, staff considered, et cetera, et cetera, how can Astrosison really make sure that the SoftBank group continues in the direction that he wants it to? And who is the best able to do that? So it might be more of a sacrificial play than a power grab play. Uh, I think that's another uh, angle to consider. One thing we didn't cover last year during that SoftBank conversation, and you and I talk about it after that, was about SoftBank's corporate culture, which we, we didn't really go into. I mean, part of it is that Masayoshi-san had built up SoftBank. It has its own internal culture, and it's very Japanese as well, given that. Do you think that part is also the problem with a Japanese corporate culture? Even though SoftBank has so many investments globally, it's unable to adjust to someone external to taking over from another nationality? So I think we see several cases of foreign executives coming into Japan and some have success, some don't have success. So it's hard to paint with too broad of a brush. I would say that in the case of SoftBank, having someone come in from the outside who is so unrelated to the existing business and the existing projects is probably a little bit of a surprise and maybe a little bit tougher for the organization to acclimate to. Let's say it's someone who was a really, really accomplished person at some other organization that SoftBank had been doing business with for years. So a lot of the other key players in the company kind of know this person, understand the reliability, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that creates just a higher level of familiarity because ultimately anytime that you're talking about a, a boss, be it a low-level manager or a CEO for that individual to work effectively, there needs to be a high level of trust and understanding between at like a, a 360 level, everyone who's at the same level of that person, as well as anyone who is reporting to that person. I, I'm always really reluctant to say like, oh, cultural differences like torpedoed a foreign executive's ability to work in Japan. But I do think that there is 
kind of a certain way of cultivating the relationships and cultivating the person's entrance into the company that can make things smoother. And I think that there is still one more reason on why I think Mikesh Aurora may have stepped down, but I'm going to leave that to later because it, it has something to do with one of the big news that just happened in two days back. But I want sure. to come to the second piece of it, which was the divestments of SoftBank's portfolio in a rapid order. I mean, in the last three weeks prior to the big event that just happened two days ago, SoftBank started divesting a lot of their portfolio. One was most notably was Supercell, which was the Nintendo of the West. And for the US, $10.2 billion, which was also to Tencent. And the sale of Gang Ho, which was probably known for Presence and Dragon. And that was sold for US $689 million. And of course, in the same period, SoftBank also offloaded $10 billion of Alibaba stock bought by Tamasic, GIC, and Alibaba themselves, and with a couple of other institutional investors. And I think one of the interesting part was that, just for everyone to know, SoftBank actually invested something like about... 300 to 400 million into Alibaba many, many years ago. And the return that they got back was 56 billion based on the holding of the stock, which is about 3,000 to 4,000 times of that return. So it's a very big sum. And I think Jack Mas is on the board of SoftBank as well. I think the first question that I wanted to ask is the divestment came in a rapid fire. What was the mood on SoftBank then? Uh, so definitely, I think when investors see these sorts of divestments and they don't always know what the next play is, there's a little bit of skittishness because it's just kind of like a, a curious thing. You're wondering, like, what, what do you need this cash for? Is, is things we sprint really that bad? And so, yeah, there's definitely, I think, a little bit, there was a little bit of an uncertainty there. But it wasn't until the acquisition of Arm that I think the <laughs> full context was, was understood. For, for me, I, I see it as companies that have those sorts of assets uh, often get criticized for holding on to them for too long. You know, the only way that a company is going to be able to use that asset to its advantage is to actually sell it, have the money in the bank, and then do something with it. Otherwise, it's just sitting there. And like Japanese companies get criticized so much for sitting on piles and piles of, of cash and not doing anything with it. To me, I think it made, made perfect sense that you are able to offload some of these assets and like, they're still holding on to the Alibaba stuff and that's still going to be a great value for them. And so yeah, they, they got a little extra cash and, and they started using it. That isn't so such a bad thing. I wanted to ask, does Japan's negative interest rates have some impact to why they divest and then immediately invest then into the market? Uh, I would say probably less than the negative interest rate and more just the timeline of, of the deal. I see. So, which comes to the big news of the week, which was SoftBank's 24.3 pounds acquisition. And I think in US dollars is about US 32 billion. And this actually, as per SoftBank's corporate communications, has the support of Jack Ma, the founder and chairman of Alibaba and negotiated after Nikesh Aurora's exit. Just to start the conversation off, I'll give a brief introduction of Arm because it stays close to my heart. Part of my life, I was actually did my PhD in Cambridge University. Arm is basically a British multinational semiconductor and software design company headquartered in Cambridge, England. Arm is like Intel to Silicon Valley in Cambridge. And I met the founders of Arm, the CEO of Arm, who has actually invested a lot of their time and money into the local entrepreneurship ecosystem. And they are best well known for their chip architecture. And 80% of the mobile devices are running on an ARM chip. And that's how they beat out Intel in the mobile world. Now, with this acquisition of ARM, we now know why SoftBank suddenly divested so much of their assets. 
So the first question I want to ask you, and I think there's a lot of ink also written on this, why did SoftBank decide to acquire ARM? Oh boy. Yeah, it seems like they're making a very big bet on the importance of these chips for Internet of Things devices, and they want to be at the forefront of that. So to me, this mirrors the move uh, into robotics, saying, okay, robotics are the future, so we're going to get one of the best robotics companies out there in Aldebaran. We're going to rename it SoftBank Robotics, and we're going to release Pepper with the aim that there's going to be a pepper in every store, pepper in every house. And now this next play, it's again, I think, Song Sun trying to look into the future and say what's going to be really necessary and trying to get the asset that he thinks is necessary for the company to, for the company being SoftBank to, to thrive. And is it really about the Internet of Things? Because mainly the ARM chip currently resides in a lot of mobile devices, like the iPhone and all Android phones as well. Yeah, I think probably depending on which analyst uh, you, you've looked at, they, they have different theories. Given Sun San's kind of insistence on the importance of IoT, that's kind of where I think that came from. And this may also play back into your previous statement about how sometimes certain leaders get certain ideas and they're very, very committed to these ideas kind of in a no matter what sort of way. This might be one of those cases as well. I thought it would be interesting to come to Another part of the conversation is that we know Masayoshi-san has often pulled off gambits that are counterintuitive. And I actually managed to dig up this Harvard Business Review 1992 article about the businesses he invested in. And he actually shared his investment philosophy. I would just read out a very short paragraph of what he said. He said that one success measure was that I should fall in love with a particular business for the next 50 years at least. Very often people get excited for the first few years and then after they see the reality, they get tired of the business. I wanted to choose one that I would feel more and more excited about as the years pass. So my question is, does ARM fit into the philosophy that Masayoshi-san said about his investment philosophy? And I think we have, he has shown time and time again with Alibaba and with a lot of very good investments that he had done across mm. the past two decades. Well, definitely, if you look at the number of people who are criticizing this deal, it's certainly fitting the counterintuitive requirement. And then in terms of kind of the, the future of where the world's going, and, you know, Sun Sun speaks a lot about the coming singularity, about where the machines are going to so heavily change the way that the world functions. You know, ships are going to be an absolutely essential part of that. So I think this is him taking a bit of a counterintuitive bet, and especially in the way that the company's value. There's a great analysis from New York Times about how the company was probably overpaid for and how like it has to just create insane growth over the next 10 years in order to even create like a, a 2 or 3x return. I would say that this looks, at this particular time, it looks kind of risky, but maybe we'll, we'll look back on it in a little bit and say this was, this was actually cheap. My gut is that this might not work out quite the way that he hopes it will, primarily because the thing that uh, that New York Times article raised, which I thought was most relevant, is that there isn't really room for a crossover between uh, what ARM does and what SoftBank does. So that means it has to build up this business and expand it almost independently from anything else. If you look at another major Japanese organization in Rakuten, it's also been in the news for a lot of divestments, divestments out of Europe, divestments out of Southeast Asia. And so these were acquisitions mostly of startups that oftentimes didn't work out. But at least when these startups were acquired, you could see how they could potentially work 
within the greater Rockton group. Even something like Viber, which I used to talk a lot about, but now we hear very little about. Something like Viber, this was acquired right before Facebook acquired WhatsApp. You had kind of conversations about how, okay, Viber can be used for selling things. Viber can be used for just making a, another entrance into the Rockton ecosystem. These sorts of things could help justify the big price tag for what was then, I, th- I guess, like the world's number three most popular messaging app. So when you have like a quote-unquote risky investment, but you can at least paint a picture of how it integrates with the larger corporate group, it becomes a little bit easier to get excited about. But in the case of ARM, that picture is harder to see. And so that means they're really making a a very strong, strong statement that this is going to be a big part of SoftBank. And it's strong enough to exist almost independently of what the rest of SoftBank is doing. And ARM is actually several layers down to where SoftBank is. I mean, if you think about SoftBank's business is in the telecommunications business, which is mobile, right? And ARM chips are on every mobile phone. I mean, but it's a few layers away as well. And if you would think about Pepper, I mean, having every ARM chip in Pepper, I mean, you can really do that with a strategic partnership. You don't need to be owning ARM to do that. In that sense, you don't see that actually linking it up from that point of view. But I guess there was also some factors that actually also benefited him during this acquisition. I mean, the Brexit and Japanese negative interest rates. You have Japan trying to tell businesses, go and take your money and do something with it. And then you have the Brexit, which drives down the cost of the pound. And it feels yeah, like so that probably, the timing. That probably saved them a couple of dollars. But we are talking about billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> we, are not talking, we are not talking about hundred millions of dollars. We are talking about billions of dollars in a time with low interest rates, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was interesting that Masa Yoshisan talked about the singularity is near for the Internet of Things. And he thinks that that market is going to sprout in the next few decades. Do you agree with that view? Uh, I'm a little bit more pessimistic on that. I think that the singularity kind of only matters if humans are actually able to interact with the machines and want to interact with the, the machines, be it augmented reality or augmented, how do you say it? I think it's like the phrase like augmented humans, like when you have like a chip in your brain or a chip on your skin or something like that. Even if the technology exists, uh, humans themselves actually want, actually need to embrace it. And so that is, I, I think, one factor that's not fully enough considered in the, the timeline of the so-called singularity. Hey, I have another theory on that. I mean, it's very similar to what Huawei did with the mobile phones. So Huawei is actually owns the carrier technology for almost half the world's telcos. And one of the things that has been pointed out to me by a couple of analysts is that when Huawei built their SN series phone, they actually made their chip comply together with their carrier networks, which makes their phones very appeal to the Chinese market. And that's how they edge out Xiaomi in the Chinese market. Of course, there are other factors as well. There is one theory that it could be that having the access to the chip is actually going to be important because I remember Ben Beharon on my show was also talking about for every hundred software engineers, you can only find one hardware engineer. And this is it's going to be a dying art, but it's very important to the entire devices ecosystem. Do you see that SoftBank is actually also thinking about that from that perspective? Well, yeah, yeah. I think you just painted the picture pretty well. Oh. Uh, if, if, they're, if they're serious about diversifying the company, because that's one thing that SoftBank is just really excellent at recreating itself. So, you know, they, they didn't used to be known for the SoftBank mobile carrier. One of their earliest tips was a electronics magazine. Then the, the SoftBank thing happened, and then the Yahoo thing happened. They have a really, really good track record of going into these new industries and owning it and making it successful. doesn't mean that it's always going to be successful. I think the, the Sprint deal is a great, something that we'll look back and say, mm, maybe that wasn't the, best, wasn't the best step. Like, for instance, if you talk about Synergy, technically, 
for I think about a year or so, if you are a SoftBank user, you could go to America and use Sprint without any extra fees. And that's a fantastic advantage, right? And so that advantage actually ended last month, but it wasn't really widely publicized. And so you ended up having a bunch of people who went to America, used a bunch of data and got hit with crazy charges. <laughs> wow. The Sprint is probably one of those parts that they're going to be written off at some point from your viewpoint. Unless something weird happened again. Yeah, I, to me, I think that the acquisition of ARM really points to the end of Sprint as far as how much energy SoftBank is going to put into it. It's at a point now where because they're such a widely known company, it's impossible for the leadership to say anything except we're going to turn Sprint around, we're going to make it happen, we're going to have a lot of success. You can't say anything else, right? But you can't have two such major acquisitions, unless they're going to suddenly hire all these extra amazing executives to make both sides work with the post-marriage integration, with the synergy throughout the, the group and getting really the maximal results out of both companies. I think the attention will be shifted a bit from Sprint to, to ARM. Is the ARM investment an indication that Masayoshi-san is back on the driver's seat? And I think there's another theory that I have why Nikesh Aurora is booted out because what he has done so far in terms of investment is more incremental rather than the way how Masayoshi-san does his deals in the past few decades, which is taking very big gambits with very high risk, high return kind of play that maybe he felt that maybe he wasn't the successor that he thought he was looking at. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. It's definitely investments of two different varieties. One being, I see Nikesh's style as being kind of just a pure kind of venture capital play. You put money into something, you're helping you to get a multi-X return, move on to the next one. I don't think that anyone really considers Snapdeal to be like a soft bank acquisition target, you know? Yeah, on Masa Yoshi-san's side, it is more of a, let's just get this business and, and take something and, and do it ourselves. In terms of the driver's seat, I don't think he ever left the driver's seat. I think that the different worlds and different responsibilities that Nikesh had were so distinct that, you know, he was the de facto number two. So that means that Sunsan is still number one. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I don't think he ever really left the, the driver's seat. Probably what would be really fascinating to know is whether or not Nikesh thought or thinks the arm acquisition is a good idea or not. But the public record is that it was done after his exit, so... We, well, these things we can't know maybe after many, many years later when a biography yeah. is written on it, of course. That's um, how you can call and talk about it. Yeah. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this with three big news in one year on secession, divestments, and gambit for software. Where do you see its prospects in 2017? Yeah, I think it's still looking up primarily because now it just has, it has more assets to play with. So you have the chips, you have the robotics, which is slowly but surely progressing. You have, I think, a little bit of a question mark with its investing activities. How aggressive will it still be? Is the 10 billion of India still earmarked? But overall, it's a company that is definitely working quite hard to stay relevant, working quite hard to have the next version of itself ready for when the current version of itself just kind of natural, technologically obsolete. For a conglomerate of this size, it's always really, really hard to look into a crystal ball and see the future. My philosophy is that if the company is actively using its financial resources and trying to create a new future, then it has a much better chance of succeeding than not. And like I would highlight, say, something like Line. Line, when it was originally accepted to do the IPO two years ago, was estimated at a $10 billion market cap. And then that got super slashed, right, down to like, you know, three, four billion in advance of, of the IPO just now. One thing that I think that a lot of people kept missing is that 
During those two years, the company was constantly trying new services. And some of those services stuck, and that means that the company was creating new revenue streams, new ways of getting people in. It's right now the only messaging app that makes money, and it makes like over a billion in revenue in one year. And investors ended up responding to that, and now, you know, it's still early, but now it has that $10 billion market cap. What do you want a company to do? Do you want a company to just stick to its strengths and sit on a pile of cash? Well, if you do that, you end up being, say, a Sony or a Sharp or a Panasonic. Or do you want a company to look at its cash, take some swings, and see what it can make work? I would say that recent history and also just looking even farther back, uh, a company that tries to stay aggressive and tries to find the new thing that will work for it has just a much higher chance of, of success. And with Masa Richardson still at the helm, I think that the chances for SoftBank to, to weather this well are, are a bit higher. I would start to get worried if, for instance, they can't find a buyer for Sprint. I would start to get worried if the robotics just kind of stalls. And I would definitely be worried if something like ARM doesn't show this sort of growth that it needs to have. In the meantime, I think some early signs on whether the company's becoming more conservative can be seen in the, the VC activity. How much does it scale back those investments? If it's still kind of being an active investor, then that to me is, still, it, it is great because it means this is a company with a lot of resources that can help grow rapidly growing companies throughout Asia. And this is something which, as you cited before, they have a very, very strong track record of doing. You know, the... 20, what was it, like 21, 22 billion dollars that they divested came because of these sorts of investments. So I think that's also a, a pretty essential part of the business model. So if that remains and we start to, and we still see uh, some promising signs in the recent major, major acquisitions, I think we should still say, still stay bullish. But yeah, it, it's probably the, the biggest anchor is something like the Sprint deal and now at every quarterly report, they're going to have to really answer some tough questions about the growth of ARM and whether or not uh, ARM is doing well. But uh, that's probably why you have someone like Sonsan to, to handle those questions and to, to steer the ship. I'm still very bullish about the company. And I know that the U.S. media don't want to acknowledge this. I always see SoftBank as the Berkshire Hathaway for technology. And I think they have done cool investments. And I don't know why nobody in the U.S. is talking about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably... A question best left to uh, to better minds than us. Yep. And definitely next year, you're going to come back and talk about SoftBank, but maybe earlier because we talked about Lion and Rakuten last year as well. Dave, help my audience. How do they find you? Oh, thanks for asking. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm on Twitter at CorbinDB, C-O-R-B as in boy, I-N-D-B. Uh, you can also just find me on good old email, david at techinasia.com. Uh, like Bernard was mentioning, I handle the speakers and stage sessions for our conferences in Bangalore, Tokyo, Jakarta, and Singapore. So if you want to get involved, just give me a ring, and uh, I'd love to talk. And I, I probably remember that you have very prominent guests on that conference seats like Omar Lake and Ben Horowitz, right? Yeah, they came to Tokyo last year. Coming up in Tokyo this year on the 6th and the 7th, we're going to welcome Jeff Jordan, general partner at Entries and Horowitz. Uh, we'll see... Tomoko Namba, founder of DNA Back. Uh, we're also going to welcome Shintaro Yamada, who is the founder and CEO of Mercari, which is Japan's first startup unicorn. So we're looking at another really strong lineup, and we're excited to have a great show for people. And you can find me at blongcw at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E. 
Plus Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and now Google Play, only in the US market. And of course, if you're on Overcast and iTunes Store, give us a good rating so that we can have more listeners to give us more feedback about our show. Once again, Dave, uh, thank you for, very, for coming on the show, and I look forward to speak to you again. Looking forward again as well, Bernard. Have a great day.